0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm
0: Tracy B. Wilson.
1: Today's topic is one that has been on my list for a very long time, almost from the time that uh, Tracy and I came on to Stuff You Missed in History Class. And many listeners have also requested it. It is uh, sort of equal parts quaint and horrifying, which is probably why people really love it so much and respond to this. Uh, and it also features a woman who is, uh, you know, a debutante heiress, but sort of anything but the standard debutante heiress you may conjure in your mind when you hear those words. And even though uh, she was sort of forced into that role and she had some, you know, society bucking instincts about where a woman should be in, uh, in her place and how that was going to work. You know, she was still nonetheless an heiress and part of that structure that had made her, uh, that had given her that position. And her name was Frances Glessner Lee. And she was a very meticulous woman. Uh, there are stories that you'll hear that she was so exacting that she actually would number the bottoms of vases and knickknacks, uh, and similarly label the shelves that they were supposed to go on with corresponding numbers so everything would always be in its exact space. That's just like a quick character insight for you because it it would maybe be no surprise then that this woman, who was surprising in many ways, was a major contributor to the world of forensic science and criminology. And we actually have a lot to thank her for.
0: So, Francis Glessner Lee came from a very wealthy family. Her father was John Jacob Glessner, and he made his fortune in the farm implement industry. Her mother, Sarah Francis Macbeth Glessner, had met John Jacob when her family had taken him in as a boarder.
1: And the Glessners were very active in civic affairs. Uh, Both of Francis's parents wrote a great deal. John served on the boards of many civic organizations, including the Citizens Association of Chicago and the Chicago Orphan Asylum. And he was also a trustee of the Chicago Orchestra Association.
0: Sarah was something of a Renaissance woman. Not only was she skilled as a seamstress, but she also studied piano, silversmithing and beekeeping. She organized gatherings for women where they could hear lectures and readings about contemporary writing. And she was one of the founders of the Chicago Chamber Music Society and was a passionate advocate for the arts.
1: Sarah and John's first child was George Macbeth Glessner, and he was born in 1871. And because George had chronic and serious hay fever, the family ended up building a second summer house in New Hampshire so he could get away from the... um, the issues in Chicago in spring and summer that would cause this hay fever to uh, sort of be a problem for him.
0: The couple had a second son in 1874, although the baby, John Francis, sadly died when he was eight months old.
1: And then their daughter, Frances Glessner, was born on March 25th of 1878. Because of George's ongoing health issues, the children uh, were homeschooled instead of sent to school by a series of tutors. And that was also actually pretty common for well-to-do families at the time, to school their children at home.
0: Yeah, we've had a lot of podcast subjects who all learned at home. Francis grew up in Glessner House, which was designed by architect Henry Hobson Richardson and was built in 1887. This house, which is on Chicago's Prairie Avenue in the South Loop, is now a National Historic Landmark and Museum. Once the Glessners moved into Glessner House, they spent winters there and summers in their New Hampshire cabin, which was called The Rocks.
1: And during one of those summers, while they were in New Hampshire, the family was joined by George's friend, another George named George Burgess McGrath. And this name you want to just keep in the back of your head uh, because he would become a pretty significant influence on Frances later in her life.
0: As Frances, who went by Fanny among her family members, uh, started to approach adulthood, she became interested in pursuing a career in law or medicine. But her parents were really against this idea. There are some unsubstantiated reports that her father John actually believed that ladies should know nothing of the human body.
1: Which sort of makes me giggle a little bit. But, you know, you have one. You're going to fundamentally know a few things. (laughs) But (laughs) it's an interesting mindset and not all of that unusual for the early 1900s, I imagine. So instead of going to university, which she had wanted to do and which her brother George was doing, Uh, Frances spent a little more than a year traveling through Europe with her aunt, Helen Macbeth, from 1896 to 1897. And after they returned to Chicago, uh, Frances made her formal society debut in November of 1897.
0: Just a few months after being presented into society, Frances married lawyer Blewett Lee, who was distantly related to Robert E. Lee. And the new couple moved into a townhouse the Glessners had built for Fanny on Prairie Avenue near the Glessner House. Her brother George also had a townhouse built by their parents and Francis was 19 when she married.
1: This marriage was not an especially happy one. Uh Eventually it became clear that Francis and Blewett really did not have all that much in common and they didn't share that many interests. Uh, one story that her son eventually tells is that, um, you know, she wanted to make things and do things all the time and Blewett was just not into that. So it really, they just had a separation of mind. Uh, the pair eventually divorced in 1914, but not before they had already had three children together. So their children were John Glessner Lee, who was born in 1898, Frances Lee, born in 1903, and Martha Lee, who was born in 1906. Uh And before we go on and talk about sort of what her life becomes after divorce, let's take a quick word from our sponsor. So now back to Frances Glessner Lee after her divorce. So... Once uh, her marriage was over and she suddenly had a new life to begin. Frances returned to a hobby that she had actually learned as a child, which was making miniatures. And in 1913, while she was separated but not yet divorced from her husband, she completed her first solo miniature diorama. And this was a detailed recreation of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, uh, which was one of the many arts organizations her mother was very passionate about. And this was complete with tiny pieces of sheet music and tiny instrument cases and little instrument stands. And it was all compiled as a gift for her mother.
0: She also took advantage of her newfound independence to learn about a subject that she'd been introduced to by the family friend we mentioned earlier, George Burgess McGrath. And this was forensic science. McGrath had studied medicine at Harvard and then had gone on to become a medical examiner.
1: And McGrath's work was immensely interesting to Frances. Uh, there's a story that while she was ill at one point, he would come and visit her every night and talk about his work uh, to keep her company. And she just became utterly it engulfed in her passion for it. Uh, and she became so interested in it that in the 1930s, she actually gave Harvard an endowment of $250,000, which has been estimated to be about $3.8 in today's money uh, adjusted for the establishment of a Department of Legal Medicine. And it's often speculated in biographies of Glessner Lee that she was, as a divorcee who now made her own decisions and was truly independent, uh, she was making up for the education that she had been denied when she was a young woman and and had wanted to study but had not been allowed to by her family.
0: She also continued to give financial gifts to the university. Uh, this went on through the years to further the department's growth and development. And her friend McGrath became chair of the new department and taught pathology as part of the program.
1: And as we mentioned earlier, Frances was from a very wealthy family and she had married well, even though the marriage did not last. But she... Uh, We cannot say enough how much she did not fit the usual mold of a moneyed society heiress.
0: So while the other women of society were throwing dinner parties for equally wealthy friends and associates, she would often host large dinner parties for detectives and investigators and scientists so she could pick their brains about their work. I love it so much. I do too. And uh, as, you know, part of her, again, meticulous,
1: character that people love to talk about in any interview with anybody that knew her, they seem to really want to be very clear that this was an exacting person. Um, like the menus would just be really, she'd be so picky about everything that they ate and it had to be perfect. And she, you know, wanted them to absolutely have the best of everything as though they were, you know, her equals in terms of financial footing in society. Um, these dinner parties were apparently amazing. And in, 1943, Glessner Lee really made a bit of history because she'd been learning about uh, forensics and had really been kind of moving in these circles for so long that she was made honorary captain of the New Hampshire State Police at this time. And that was a title
0: that no other woman held at that point. In 1945, she hosted the first Harvard Associates in Police Science or HAPS seminar seminar. This was an invitation-only event where attendees were treated to lavish meals and an intensive week of learning the latest methods in crime scene investigation from experts in the field.
1: And those were also equally meticulous, these social events that centered around it. There's a story that I read in in one of my sources that... She purchased an eight thousand dollar china set for the hotel that hosted this event every year, and it was only used for this event. It was basically her china that she kept at the hotel for this thing that would happen twice a year and because I guess theirs wasn't good enough i'm not it was unclear why she felt compelled to buy this whole set of china uh I'm, but I'm gonna think
0: maybe she was just persnickety,
1: I think a little bit um. And through all of her talks with investigators and detectives and her discussions with McGrath about his work, this idea had been forming in Glessner Lee's mind about how she could personally further the field of investigation outside of just being a financial donor. I mean, she was really funneling a lot of money into this department at Harvard with the intent that she was going to raise the standards, uh, you know, through education of how criminal investigation worked.
0: So she came to realize that if the police had prolonged access to a crime scene, they could find the clues that would reveal the events that had occurred there, which to us is kind of like, well, yeah. Uh, but crime scenes just can't be maintained indefinitely, and the evidence there can be corrupted or lost. And additionally, for investigators in training, there were just never enough crime scenes in which they could practice their skills. So Glessner Lee came up with an idea to train investigators and to develop their observation skills.
1: So this is sort of the thing she's most well known for. Over a seven year
0: period from
1: 1943 to 1950. So some of this was going on concurrently with her development of these seminars. Uh, she assembled this group of projects called the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And these were tiny dioramas that would have been, in most regards, idyllic dollhouse scenes,
0: were it not for the the fact that each of them depicted a death of some kind. So each of these scenes, there are 18 in all, was assembled based on case reports and court records about actual deaths. And some of the dioramas would combine multiple cases. And while all of the case details were meticulously recreated the decor in each grisly scene was chosen by the heiress. So these have been described by many with some degree of amusement because they're clearly, like, the impression that a wealthy woman who has only known a life of luxury has of how the middle and lower class live. They're often pretty garish.
1: Uh, yeah, it's one of those things that people kind of giggle about. Uh, even though, you know, she really wasn't into all of the society trappings, she, it was clearly all she had known. So even in their, um, cabin in New Hampshire, which was a very small and sort of, uh, simple affair, it still had the best of everything. And again, this is a woman that spent thousands of dollars to have the perfect China for, <laughs> for police seminars. So clearly she knew a certain aesthetic and a certain life. And so when she imagined what uh poor people lived like, or even middle-class people. It was kind of very funny, the things she would put together and pick out as how their houses would look. Uh The smallest of these dioramas is 8 by 14 inches, and the largest is a 30-inch square three-room dwelling. And I cannot stress enough how incredibly detailed these are. They're in a one-inch to one-foot scale, Uh, But they have teeny tiny cigarettes that she hand rolled. They have mice in the walls and sometimes mice in little traps. There are socks that she hand knitted on straight pins. And she would like whittle, uh, she would hand whittle tiny, tiny clothes pins that would fill these dioramas. So they were full of, you know, sort of the debris of life and and all of the things that are just normal parts of any given home in this teeny tiny scale that she had meticulously created. So, again, the word meticulous keeps coming up. And there is a reason she was uh, the skin on the dolls that she used was carefully painted to mimic decomposition in some cases if it was a case where the scene was supposed to be found with this body having been there for a while. The blood spatter is carefully applied to walls uh, in cases where there is one. There's one piece that's entitled Burnt Cabin, and she had, again, meticulously built this entire cabin, and then she burned it down with a blowtorch. Um, and she was also using... uh She didn't do all of this all by herself, although most of it was. But she would also use carpenters sometimes. She had a carpenter that she retained and really trusted, and he would work on some of the smaller woodworking elements of it.
0: So in these dioramas, the shades and the drawers all work. The doors have these tiny functioning locks with itty-bitty keys. In the scenes where there are children, there are miniature toys that are carefully recreated to mimic full-sized versions. And aside from their criminology impact, these dioramas are just incredible works of art all on their own.
1: But the most important thing about these scenes, as much as I could personally go on and on about all of their little details that just completely capture my attention. uh, They provided really important learning models for investigators. So through an analysis of each of these tiny crime scenes, uh, A systematic approach to crime scene investigation was really developed. She basically introduced these to, uh, investigators, police officers, and detectives. And they used them to develop the methods that are still being used today. Uh, these include, like, using search zones to analyze a crime scene and investigative patterns where they'll sometimes circle a scene from, like, the outside and spiral inward. Uh, so that they don't miss any details. And these are standard procedures now, and they came from these tiny little sort of dollhouse dioramas.
0: Yeah, what's amazing to me isn't just that they're standard procedure now, but that before anybody put together a a methodology like this, the whole field of crime scene investigation was kind of chaos, like we talked about in our uh, Axeman of New Orleans episodes. Yeah. Like, there were, people didn't really have a standardized and methodical way of looking at a scene to try to find evidence, and so they didn't and so even when
1: they would consult with uh other other investigators sometimes, they just weren't working off the same page because they didn't use the same approaches in all cases, and it just made things really tricky and needlessly complicated. Uh, so one of the things that she even did as part of her seminars that she was hosting is she was basically creating a network of investigative researchers. So men that had gone through, uh eventually, I presume women attended, but in the early days, it was all men that had gone through these classes and these seminars would then be connected to one another after they graduated the seminar and they would consult with each other. And she sort of developed this, you know, she catalyzed this network developing where Detectives could talk to each other about things they had found at crime scenes and really, um, you know, kind of grow the field in a way that it never would have grown otherwise if somebody hadn't said, let's all get in a room together and talk about what we're doing. It's very cool.
0: So all of these scenes, I mean, they all had a backstory of their own. They were put together based on actual case reports and actual information about crimes. But the goal, according to Glessner Lee was not to solve the crime that had happened in the diorama. It was to practice observation. And the Nutshells became part, as I said, of these HAP seminars.
1: And they've been used to train investigators at the gathering for years. So normally, when she was first doing this, I don't know if the methodology of using them has changed, but... Like each student would be assigned two of the models and they would get approximately 90 minutes of study for each scene. And then later, the student investigators would give a verbal report before the group and they would all have a discussion of their findings that would ensue. And one of this goal, one of the goals of this practice, as I said, she was developing this network and this dialogue among different investigators of how they would approach things. But it was also to get students away from this concept of following a hunch uh, and instead to take in all of the evidence that they see on a crime scene with an open mind. Like, instead of just looking for things that verify what they suspect has happened, she wanted them to learn to look at everything in a crime scene and not let any stray detail go because they didn't think it supported what actually happened.
0: This is reminding me of, like, an episode of Bones.
1: It should, because a lot of that grew out of this. Uh She is also allegedly, I didn't put it in here initially, but... There have been rumors for years that she was actually the inspiration for Angela Lansbury's character on Murder, She Wrote, because she was an older woman at this point doing all of this excited crime scene investigation.
0: Glessner Lee continued to advocate for medical training for legal agents and systemized investigation practices and in law enforcement all the way until the end of her life. Yeah, prior to
1: her uh, and her work with McGrath, coroners, for example, didn't need to have any medical training it was, you know, an appointment that they would get and then they would rely on on the people below them to cover the medical bases. But she really wanted to make sure that there was a systematic way to uh, make sure that trained medical personnel were involved in investigations. And it wasn't just people guessing that did not know the workings of the human body. Frances died in New Hampshire at the Rocks, at the, the small home that her family had had built there, on January 27th of 1962. And four years later, the Department of Legal Medicine that she had endowed at Harvard was dissolved for lack of funding.
0: The collection of nutshell studies became part of a public display at the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office when the Department of Legal Medicine was closed. So not only are they available for public viewing, but they're also used as teaching tools for forensic investigation.
1: Yeah, I think now uh, you have to actually request permission to go see them. I think there's one in the lobby. I have read a few different reports and they fall at different times, like different years that they've been written. I think there's one or two still in the lobby that people can just walk in and see. And you can examine all of them if you just make an appointment to go up. I think they're on the third floor of the Maryland Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, so in 1992, the Nutshells actually underwent a restoration that cost about $50,000. Just a general sort of upkeep and refresh, although they still have the kooky decor.
0: In 2012, a documentary about the Nutshell Studies was made entitled Of Dolls and Murder, and it examines the place of Glessner's Lee's work in relation to the forensic world, as well as the role of women in society.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh modern historians have kind of wanted to analyze her place in terms of like an an early phase of feminism, uh, which I didn't get into here. It's covered by other people. I really wanted to focus on her crime work. Uh, but one of the most interesting things about Glessner Lee's work is perhaps the fact that while she was a self-taught criminologist uh, that was afforded access to this hobby just because she was an heiress with immense wealth, she became incredibly respected by the men that she worked with and the men that she helped to train. And she once said, quote, I didn't do a lick of work to deserve what I have. Therefore, I feel I have been left an obligation to do something that will benefit everybody. So if you're wondering why an heiress thought that it would be fun to do this and became so impassioned about developing criminology systems.
0: That is why. In her early years of studying and working for forensic science, she may have been seen as kind of this wealthy, eccentric lady, but that image has been completely eclipsed by the important influence of her work. Yeah,
1: many men uh in looking at research for this, I saw many men that she had worked with through the years really described her as one of the best criminologists they had ever met like she definitely knew what she was talking about she wasn't just making cute dollhouse scenes to play with um she was very focused and it was it was not random at all she really was super smart super well educated even if it was not in a formal setting and she wrote an article in 1952 for the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. And I just wanted to read the last paragraph of it because it, it is really sort of beautiful. And it's a, a good way to end discussion about her. And it says, quote, technical skill, scientific knowledge and professional training, however, are not all there is to legal medicine. There is something else, something hard to define, which must accompany them. Quote, the application of medical knowledge and skill to the uses and purposes of the law, unquote, is not the whole story. It is far more than that. It is an unremitting quest for facts. It is a constant and continuous search for truth in the interests of science and justice to expose the guilty to clear the innocent. It is a dedication of its own peculiar wisdom and experience to the service of mankind. That sort of sums up her entire approach to it, which makes me love it. Yeah. And now I have listener mail. Hooray,
0: listener mail.
1: I have two pieces because they're both shortish. Uh, first is from our listener, Alan, who writes to us often. Uh, and he's sent us some really beautiful pictures lately while he's been traveling the world. Uh, and he says, hi, as you may know from the tiger picture I sent, I was in India and now I'm catching up on my podcast. So I'm behind. As a result, I just heard the one on Ambrose Bierce. With that in mind, I would like to tell you something of interest. I, as a retired psychologist, volunteer at the VA in the PTSD clinic. In listening to his life after the Civil War, it really sounded like he had PTSD. The behaviors you describe sound a lot like those of people suffering from PTSD, as did the experiences he had in the service, including the loss of his close friend. Uh, and Alan goes on to recommend the book, uh, Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan Shea, M.D., Ph.D., as a really good book on the subject if people are interested in it. That occurred to me as well, but as someone who is not clinically versed in PTSD, I'm, I'm always reluctant to make those jumps, even if it, it seems like it fits the mold. So it's just good to have somebody who is a pro uh, kind of back up what I think probably many of us were thinking in listening to the Ambrose Beer story. So... My second note is from our listener, Kate, and she wrote us on Facebook and she says, I recently discovered your podcast and I'm really enjoying it. I just listened to the two Everest podcasts and was left wondering about the first woman to summit the mountain. Do you know anything about her or the history of women climbing? Oh, my gosh, do I love this topic? I love, love, love this topic. So I was really glad Kate asked about it. It's a little too modern, really, for us to cover on the show
0: yeah we have kind of a we, we get some suggestions sometimes for things that are a little more modern than we usually talk about and our our cutoff is kind of the late 60s, early 70s?
1: Yeah. And so, uh, but I will answer this as listener mail. It gives me a good opportunity to talk a little bit more about Everest and a woman who is really amazing. Uh, her name is Junko Tabe, and she was the first woman to summit Everest. She is a native of Fukushima, and she made her historic ascent in 1975. And she's really incredible in many ways. Her life story is fabulous because she fought very hard for women's equality in Japan. She actually founded the Ladies Climbing Club of Japan in 1969, and she really broke cultural tradition uh on her ascent because she left her three-year-old daughter at home with her husband, which is unheard of culturally at that point, to just go off and climb a mountain. And her husband is also a mountaineer, so presumably he really had some understanding of, you know, the drive that w- made her want to do this. Uh Her expedition was incredible because it consisted of a 15-woman team, which was a first, uh it was mocked at the time by a lot of male mountaineers uh so the events surrounding her summit were already pretty extraordinary and uh she has since become an advocate of sustainable mountaineering in the hopes that she can stop some of the destruction that's happening as more and more climbers take on everest each year uh and we'll link to a couple of really great articles about her in the show notes if you want to read more about her uh i have immense respect for her she's an amazing woman she's still alive Uh, she's just, she has the most beautiful smile. I, I love everything about her. I have a little bit of Everest rabies for someone that doesn't want to climb it. But, (laughs) but, uh, I highly recommend reading up on her because she's really incredible. She only was the, she only got to be the only woman that had ever summited for like, uh, less than two weeks. I think 11 days later some, another woman summited. But she, um, she continues her work in trying to, really maintain the mountain, and I love her sustainable mountaineering uh, work that she's been doing. So if you would like to write to us, you should do that. You can do it in a number of ways. You can write to us via email at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can check in with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff. We're on Twitter at mistinhistory. Uh, we are also on mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest, pinning like madwomen. Uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our uh, parent site, How Stuff Works, and type in Crime Scene Investigation in the search bar, and you will get an article called How Crime Scene Investigation Works. One of the really cool things in that article is a series of diagrams about the... Uh, the investigation patterns that were developed as a consequence of the work with, uh, Francis Glessner Lee, like the spiral that I talked about and the sort of zoned investigation approach to crime scenes. Uh, and you can learn about that and almost anything you would like at our parent site, which is House of Works. And you can also visit us on our own magical, exciting history site, which is mistinhistory.com. We hope you do both of those things.